the minute that I start to feel inept or like less valuable is when I stop performing at my best because my brain is sending the signals to the rest of my body that's like, hey, you should freeze and think about what you're doing. So that's not to say like, I don't like critical feedback. Like I constantly have this growth mentality where I'm constantly learning, but I feel like imposter syndrome is spectacularly killer to people's careers. Hello and welcome to the pod. I'm your host, Andrew Kaplan, and today I'm fired up because I got Sam Richard on the show. Sam's a friend, a colleague, uh, someone that I look to when I'm stuck and I need someone to, to help me get unstuck. Sam's a growth badass. So she is the former VP of growth at OpenView who created and refined and evangelized the category of PLG. And in November of last year, she accepted a new gig, and now she is head of growth at Ngrok, which is a really high-volume developer tool. So I'm excited to have Sam on the show. We're going to talk nonlinear career paths. We're going to talk work trauma. We're going to talk, uh, you know, work anxiety. We're going to talk about all the bumps and bruises that come with leading cross-functional growth teams and working at early stage companies. Uh, it's going to be an honest and a vulnerable conversation, and I hope you enjoy. This episode of the Delivering Value podcast is brought to you by Novatic. If you're listening to this and you have followed me online, it should be no surprise that Novatic is a sponsor. Talk about the interactive demo space all the time. As a former two-time head of growth, I learned pretty quickly that there's a huge percentage of signups that create an account, poke around for a couple minutes, and leave and never come back. If you survey these folks, they usually say, hey, I just wanted to see the product in action for a few minutes. I'm not ready to buy. I don't want to upload my stuff. I just wanted to see it. And so creating some version of your product that's ungated, that people can play with on your website, tends to be super helpful for that population of people. It increases the quality of your users. It weeds out all the clunkers, so from clouding up your data, and it starts the onboarding process way before someone even gets into the product. It's a huge part of the growth operating system, and if you're looking for help building this, so you don't have to take months and months doing it in-house like my engineers did, use Novatic. They create third-party tools that help you do exactly this. I send a lot of my advising clients their way, and they're a great product. I'm Sam Richard. I run growth at Ngrok. Um, I formerly worked at OpenView Venture Partners as a head of growth. Um, prior to that, I was a I was an early employee at a company called Dispatch. I've had lots of jobs prior to that because I'm an old lady. Um, personally, I am very data driven and I like using numbers to make decisions or uh, defend a case. Um, that can be that is definitely like embedded as part of my personality in general. Um, I tend to, um, I. I tend to be a little bit uh, high anxiety, high drive, high overachiever, which I think I've seen quite a bit of in the growth field overall. Um, and I have a pretty wry sense of humor. And I use that as my outlet on LinkedIn. And that is what most people know me by. Um, but I think it's really funny that people know me as like the meme person when I can often come off as really dry and data driven um, as an individual at work. <laughs> so it's a, it's a juxtaposition for sure. And you know what's really interesting? I feel like the high anxiety, high drive, it's like a constant if you work in growth. It's like your superpower, but it's kind of also the kryptonite. So we can dig into that more, but that's something that I certainly, like that resonates with me. And I bet other folks who are listening to this will also feel like that resonates with them. How did you, how do you self-identify in that way? Like high anxiety, high drive, you listed it off pretty quick. Have you taken like an assessment or that's just your feel? That's just your vibe? Yeah, no, that's definitely just my vibe. Um, like my resting heart rate is consistently in the 90s. So I just have like a little bunny heart. And um, <laughs> and I, 
I'm always like doing something like people ask me like oh what are you watching like what are your hobbies and like I don't know like last night I was stripping wood off of my old hundred year old doors like even when I'm not working I'm doing something and I I inherited that from my family I remember always seeing that and you know maybe it's some sort of mental illness but it's you know it's how I get my kicks it's fun well, and that's a big part of working at early stage companies and in these types of roles is like you're kind of constantly pushing the ball forward too, right? There's like a lot of overlap there. Right. And you also like have the ability to see what's coming around corners and the capacity to care about it um, because you have this sort of energizing or funny personality, um, which tends to make growth people who they are. Um, they're, they're carrying a lot of different things on their plates um, and they're fine with it. And I think that's definitely a big personality thing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And just to round out your background a little bit, how long have you worked in or around growth teams? Yeah. Oh, that's hard. Um, I started my career in um, consulting, which is definitely not growth. It was like government consulting, but I was doing a ton of data analysis. Um, I didn't love that. So in 2014, I switched to like a an agency, like a marketing agency that was doing some interesting work on card abandonment emails, which in 2014 was super hot. Yeah, um, and I was, yeah, I was doing like account management and like taking a look at data on how we could optimize it. And while formerly my title was account manager, I realized now what I was doing was like actually optimizing growth for various accounts using our product. Um, and then I moved into marketing manager role at what is now Catalan under Dan Slagan. Um, and he was like, look, I need left brain marketers. I need right brain marketers. You, you know, your way around a spreadsheet, like you're going to do everything around ops. And I ended up like really gravitating towards the, like the product team and figuring out our onboarding and how we could create some life cycle around that. And so I guess I've been doing growth like my whole career, but the titles have always been very different. And I gave myself the title of growth at dispatch, um, because marketing was sort of like the defense against the dark arts position there. And um, the product team didn't want me. So I, I anointed myself in a way. And that, you know, that the rest is history. And that kind of resonates with me too, because I mean, growth is relatively new as a capability, but the skill set's been around for a long time. We just didn't really know what to call it. And I think as time has gone on and the capability has been validated a little bit more, growth owns a bit. And now there's some specialization, there's growth product work, there's growth marketing work, there's heads of growth that oversee uh, kind of those two cross-functional teams, but it makes sense that at some point in time, you're like, oh, right, there's there's now a word to describe this thing that I, I kind of didn't know how to describe before. Um, to go a little bit deeper on that, this is not a show to dig into like your favorite growth tactics strategies, but just to share a little bit more context for those who are listening, what would be like a growth career accomplishment that you're really proud of? Just to kind of share a little bit more for folks who aren't familiar with your work and the type of stuff that you specialize in. Yeah, I mean, some of the interesting work that I did at OpenView um, that's now public, so I can talk about it. But um, I, Op Calendly is an OpenView portfolio company, and they were sort of finding that um, their product is super duper horizontal and able to be used by everyone. And that's why they're an amazing company that's worth billions of dollars. Um, however, like where their bread and butter tended to be was in folks who schedule a lot of meetings, which makes obvious sense. And um, I was actually helping them do some diligence around a potential acquisition within like the interview scheduling market. Um, there are a lot of like sort of one-off tools there, but we felt like Calendly would be incredibly strong um, and like helping to identify that need, helping to understand like where the product was lacking and then um, 
actually like helping to identify like which companies it should be and how their users felt about it, what were their shortcomings and how could like that be synergistic with Calendly was definitely great. Um, they ended up making an acquisition. Um, I don't know if it was based on that information, but it made me really, really proud. Um, I've always been like more economically focused. I've always been like excited to be doing M&A and that type of growth too. So that was really cool um, because it seemed so outside of the remit of growth. But it's definitely also one of the biggest drivers of growth that you can do as a company. Hell yeah. So it's almost like you your background in growth allowed you to almost take on something that had an even bigger scope and an even bigger impact, really combining all the skills you've picked up right along the way from from kind of where your career started and kind of stacking the stuff that got you in, you know, initially into open view to the next level. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, to clarify, I wasn't doing like financial modeling. We left that to the professionals, but, you know, do understanding the market and the segmentation and things like that around it was, you know, it's a, it's definitely a growth school, a skill set um, and one that I was happy to contribute. For sure. And so from the outside looking in, like you and I are friends, but I'm also a follower, right? So I see what you post. You post all kinds of funny memes. You post all kinds of PLG insights. You're super involved in the benchmarks report. Like from the outside looking in, it looks easy. Like you make it look easy. Like you're sharing stuff. There's probably people who are listening to this who will follow you that'll, that you look up to them in the way that you and I have looked up to other SaaS heroes throughout our career. And I guess I'm wondering, does this career path feel easy to you? Like, do you feel like you were made to do this? Has this come naturally? Yeah. Um, I think like my gut says yes. Um, just because like, I have so much energy and like, I feel like I bring so much chaos and like, I need something where I am the pioneer. Um, I would get really bored as like a consultant or like at a track organization where like, if I were a corporate lawyer, for example, where you do your time, you do your hours, you get promoted to make partner eventually. Like, I think that would make me incredibly miserable. And like, I was actually interviewing at a lot of really large organizations, like some of like the top 10 in the Fortune 500. And my husband was like, that's just not you as a person. Like you would be miserable there. Um, so I do think like this field and the ability to create and be creative as well as, you know, tie that to the actual business outcomes is so incredibly rare and so exciting that it definitely fits in with my personality and who I am as a person. That's cool. You know, what's really interesting is like, the thing that you crave is often the same thing that causes a lot of pain, which is high growth, high change, high chaos, basically. It's one of the things I hear a lot about as a coach where people kind of glorify what it really is like to work at a startup, but like the truth is it's fucking chaos. And so you're someone who thrives in that, craves it, is allergic to the opposite of that, right? The slow kind of bigger pace at some of those large companies. How do you navigate the startup craziness that happens at early stage companies like this? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it is perspective. I think like my first startup job, I was like, wow, this place is a hellscape. Um, and you know, maybe it's like the boiling frog problem where, you know, you're a frog in a pot and it just keeps getting hotter and hotter until you die. Um, maybe it's that. But honestly, you know, given perspective, um, I, I like to try and calm my teammates down by saying like, hey, is this going to matter in two years? Like, is this one of the things that's going to matter in two years? If this doesn't get done, is this going to matter in two years? Um, if this just gets done poorly? And that is the perspective that I bring to everything. I mean, I know you know this, but like as a parent, I cannot work the 12 hour days that I used to work. So for me, perspective is really important and it helps me focus, focus, focus. 
Um, and that was another one of the reasons why I went back to operating instead of being in VC and sort of like helping the portfolio companies because the ability to focus is much easier to me in a startup because you have less noise between you and an end user or you and a customer as well. To go a little bit deeper, like one of the challenges that I hear a lot about for folks who work at early stage companies who are doing well is that the companies grow really fast and people are worried the company is going to outgrow their skill set. Have you ever felt that way? Of course. I think everyone feels that way. Everyone has this imposter syndrome. And I hope that these companies outgrow my skill set because that would be really great for me financially and reputationally. Um, First round capital obviously has like some of the best content programs out there. And they have this article called Letting Go of Your Lego. Um, and Which I probably, I've read. I think it was maybe yeah. republished in like an HBR yeah. thing at some point. It's it's ancient, um, but I probably revisit that article like once a year. Um, I'll probably end up doing it more now that I'm operating. But in my experience and in my career, there have been times where like I've done something, I've done it so well that I'm like wash, rinse, repeat, could do it in my sleep, and I've always gone on to a bigger and better thing. So. If I put on my big girl brain and I'm not like sort of this scared little animal of a person, I know that something better is going to happen once I let that go. And I encourage like anyone who's listening to this or is early in their career to have that kind of faith too. Um, you know, just manifest that kind of luck to yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the manifesting is cool, right? So it's it's letting go of today to build towards tomorrow. And I notice that a lot of folks have a hard time doing that. Have you seen that? Like, have you seen peers that have sort of either gotten stuck or gotten overly nervous working at a company that's growing really fast and not been able to hand over their Legos? Like, have you seen that before? I see that a lot. I've seen that a lot. Um, I see that especially associated with status and like being close to like the most valuable accounts or the most valuable feature set or the most valuable customers. Um, And I see those people like missing out on opportunities that would be really great for them. Um, And I start to see like negative ethical behavior as a result. And like the moment you start acting outside of like your ethical bubble as a person and you start to sort of compromise, especially at work, um, I feel like it's a really slippery slope. And the only answer really is to leave the organization once you start acting outside of that. Um, It's hard to provide like examples without dunking on individuals. But um, when you know you're doing it, you know you're doing it and you don't feel good Um, and it doesn't make anyone else feel good and people start avoiding you. Um, So don't do that. It's almost like a sickness, right? Where you can kind of see it and it can infect people where one person starts talking about it to another person and they say, yeah, I feel that too. And then all of a sudden you kind of have these teams that are sort of operating and it feels a little icky. And so you definitely got to be careful about it. Yeah. You become um, untouchable in a way. Yeah. And so what about at companies that are just growing really fast where it feels like it feels like the startup craziness? Like there's a couple companies that I advise right now that I think identify this way. I, I also coach some folks who work at some really high growth companies, and it just feels like things are always changing. Like it doesn't necessarily mean the company's outgrowing them, but it's like the strategy is shifting and the approach is shifting and they're, they're throwing out the old product and building this new thing. What would you say to people who are going through that type of an environment and are just feeling uneasy and unsettled in their day to day? I would always say, trust your gut. Um, there have been times in my life where I have felt terrible about like there have been times in my life where the changes have excited me and I've been like, yes, how do we go faster on this? And there have been times in my life where I'm like, yo, things are changing and I don't feel good about it. And my gut is telling me to run. Um, and I haven't. And then I've like gotten trapped or been in enormous amounts of pain. 
And I think you just need to trust your gut as an individual. And unfortunately, that's something that just proves itself over time. So it's harder to be earlier in your career. But I don't know, my gut's never done me wrong. Um, So I don't think anyone else's will either. I used to ignore mine. Because like you, I identify as overly analytical. And I couldn't make sense of it. I, and my brain would be like, hey, this doesn't this doesn't feel right. Or, or my gut would tell me this doesn't feel right. And my brain would be like, well, let's list it out. There's nothing on paper that doesn't seem like it's wrong. And I, I've kind of learned to listen a little bit more to that intuition over time too. But it's hard, right? Because it's a different muscle and it feels foreign if you're, if you're overly analytical. Well, and you feel like, oh, these people are smarter than me. They know what's going on. Like, But if what they're saying to you doesn't make you feel good and doesn't make you excited, there's a reason for that. Like we have a gut for a reason. Like we are these flesh computers and, you know, that's built in there. So like, listen to it. It's, it's one of the most valuable things you have. I once read a book or an article that said the gut is basically your brain not being able to categorize some information and communicating with your belly. And sometimes when you can't put something in a, in like a bucket cognitively, you feel it. And that's actually what the gut is. And once I understood that, it was like, oh, great, right. My brain can't make sense of this thing. My body is shouting at me in some other ways. And then I started to tune in a little bit more. Yeah, that's great. So you've mentioned this in a couple of different ways, but imposter syndrome is one of the other things that I hear all the time from folks who work in and around growth roles. And I'm wondering if that resonates with you. It does and it doesn't. Um, I feel like it's different to be a woman because um, like some of the most critical feedback I've received has been like your high ego. Um, and that's a problem. Um, and I always wonder if that was provided because I was a woman and have a high ego or less so. Um, but I do get imposter syndrome. And to me, it is almost like as killer as that illness that we were talking about. Like the minute that I start to feel inept or like less valuable is when I stop performing at my best because my brain is sending the signals to the rest of my body that's like, hey, you should freeze and think about what you're doing. So that's not to say like, I don't like critical feedback. Like I constantly have this growth mentality where I'm constantly learning, but I feel like imposter syndrome is spectacularly killer to people's careers. Um, And some of the things that I do are I like go back and think about the things that I've done well, or go back and think about why am I feeling this way? Like, Am I going from my wise human brain to this small animal child brain? And what is making me feel this way? And start to like sort of tally off what those feelings are um, and why I'm feeling that way. But honestly, like imposter syndrome to me is like not something that you can work with. It is a handicap and it is something that you have to eliminate very quickly. As you share all that, I totally agree. Is there, is there like a point in your career that you think back to that's like, wow, this was a time when I really struggled or when I really kind of had to squash the mole, which is imposter syndrome? Like, is there specific details that come to mind for you? I mean, it happened to me. It happened to me a lot at the end of my role at Dispatch. It also happened to me a lot at the end of my role at OpenVIO. And honestly, I feel like those were some of the reasons that I went in a different direction with my career because I started to feel terrible about myself. And I started to question my decisions, question my career choices, question everything about myself, like think about living off the grid in New Hampshire, you know, crazy things. Living um, the dream. Yeah, you know, or some people's dream. Um, and, you know, what was causing that was like lack of direction and lack of connectivity to knowing like, what's really going to move the needle, what's really going to make a difference and lack of prioritization. And in some cases that was, you know, due to less good of management In other cases it was due to like macroeconomic conditions and like the world changing and not really knowing what to do next. 
Um, but I think in both scenarios, I made the right choice by leaving. Um, and, you know, you know, fight or flight, I, I flew um, <laughs> rather than fight it. But, uh, but yeah, those are those are like the most pivotal moments. And I imagine I will have further in my career, too. How do you know if it's good imposter syndrome or if it's bad imposter syndrome? Like, for example, you just started a new gig. You're a couple months in at Engrock. Are you feeling any imposter syndrome now? I do specifically because I'm way, way, way above my head in terms of technical uh, workload. Like Alan, who's wonderful, is the founder. And he's like, why well, I joined Engrock. He's like the best developer I've ever met. Like when people say 10x engineers, they're talking about him. Um, talking to him is really difficult because I have no idea you know, what any of these things are, what ingress is, you know, what those types of things are. Um, and I, I go back and I ask, like, why are you feeling so out of your depth? Is it because it's the subject matter or is it because it's the way this person intends for you to feel? If it's subject matter, that's great. Like, those are things that I can learn and improve. But if it's like, if it's malicious and that's how people want me to feel in order to have power over me, then that is wrong and I should leave. And that makes sense. And so that's how you navigate it is you check in with yourself and ask yourself, hey, what's really going on here and try to gain a little bit more clarity. I mean, these are my words, not yours, but that's kind of how I heard you describe it. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, and I think it goes back to intentions and relationships, um, which are also incredibly important to get clarity on as a growth professional too. Yeah, yeah, totally. And as we started that last section, you mentioned something where you got feedback where someone said you were high ego, which I imagine sucked right? We've all gotten feedback. That's yours. And I appreciate you sharing it in a public forum. We've all gotten tough feedback like that. Which, are you comfortable sharing a little bit more context around what was going on in your career at that time and how that popped up? Yeah. I mean, it was really early in my career. I actually think we would have worked together had I gotten that role, but it was at HubSpot and it was oh, you and I marketing manager yeah, no way. for a new amazing. product. And I like loved the team. Megan Kearney Anderson was the hiring leader and she's a good friend and wonderful. Um, but I went into the conversation with the PM on the team and sort of acted like I knew what was going on. And in reality, I didn't. He called my bluff. And, you know, HubSpot had a wonderful process at the time where they told you why um, they didn't hire you. And that was really the reason. And it was just like that one person's feedback. But that's always stuck with me is to think is to constantly have this feedback check of how does this come off to this person? Um, and you don't have to be right all of the time. Um, and how is this person? How is like... I don't know, conversations are a two-way street. Like if you're not making a person feel good or if you're not entertaining that person or they're not getting anything out of it, you're going to be getting that level of feedback um, and potentially be told that you have a high ego. And so in this case, it sounds like you accepted the feedback, ingested it, learned from it, and now it's part of how you operate where you check in on that and it actually was super value add. I imagine that there's other times when you've gotten feedback where you didn't react in that way. And I'm wondering what it is about this situation that allowed you to take the feedback and be motivated by it versus maybe other times in your career. Honestly, I'm going to call your bluff on that because I am very susceptible to feedback. I like I think a lot of growth folks have this where they just don't get a lot of feedback um, because you're kind of a lone wolf or people don't know what they don't know. So they just don't give you any feedback. So I've always like sea urchined myself onto any feedback that I have received, good or bad, and like tried to ingest it and tried to become that person they want me to be. I only recently learned that you can take feedback and ignore it, um, especially <laughs> if the intentions of those people are not good for you. Um, and, you know, that was like many years of coaching and therapy and those types of things. And, you know, now one of my goals is to take feedback. And if it doesn't serve me to, to just take it, bank it and not necessarily try and iterate on it. 
it was a, a light bulb moment for me as well. Uh, at some point in my career, I got some tough feedback uh, in a 360 performance review, and I reviewed it with my manager, and I just remember being crushed. And as a coach, like I hear flavors of this all the time, where I'll talk to folks, just like you said, they get no feedback, no feedback, no feedback. All of a sudden, they get this, this bomb, this bombshell of feedback, and they, they're crushed, and they're totally thrown off their game by it, and, they, and they're knocked off the horse a little bit. And I had a flavor of that. And my manager very calmly said, you get feedback. It's your job to choose whether you want to accept it or not. And to me, that was this light bulb moment where it was like, oh, that's right. I get to choose here. And it sounds like you had a flavor of that as well, at least more recently. Yeah. And now I think the best practice for me is like, I actually hate those 360 reviews because someone like the only things that stay with people for a long period of time tend to be negative. That's just totally. Humans. Totally. So, you know, at the end of every large presentation I have or at the end of every meeting I have with every single individual CEO, individual developer, I am asking for feedback and saying, how could I have done this better? Is there something that's missing? Um, you know, what's the bull case on this? What's the bear case on this? And that to me is actually much more valuable because it's in the moment and it tends to be more frank than it would be if I, you know, had you fill out a form. So rather than wait for this big feedback and be bracing for it, you're proactively seeking it out often on all these little things where you might get a course correction, but it might feel like a paper cut more than this massive open wound if it were all to come at once. Correct. When did you start doing that? Um, I was working with a coach while at OpenView and you know that's something that she would do just to like consistently be getting a vibe check in conversations and I really admired her. Um, so I just started copying her. I've met a number of employees who've done that as well. But while I was in the interview process, I actually found that it worked incredibly well when I was the candidate. And, you know, there were my, I was always like, hey, I'm interviewing, like, obviously I want this job or else I wouldn't be interviewing. Like, what's, you know, what's keeping you from me being an absolute, like, yes. Um, and everyone gave me like wonderful feedback. Um, and it actually turned people from no into yeses. Huh. So highly recommend. That's cool. So you shared earlier in our conversation, you said something like, I identify as someone who's high drive, high anxiety. And I'm wondering what situations at work cause you to feel high anxiety? Like, are there certain type of work, certain moments during the year, or just maybe times in your career when you've identified stronger that way maybe than others? Yeah, I mean, high anxiety for me, like in the past has been like presenting something that I'm not 100% on. Um, where I may not understand the data set well, I may not understand the market well, like where I know that I may not be fully right. Um, I'm trying to get better at that um, and be okay with like 75% accuracy rather than 100%. Those things make me really nervous. Um, also presenting to people who I know don't really have my best, like aren't the biggest fans of me always makes me nervous. I hope that makes everyone nervous. Um, or knowing something that's high stakes makes me really anxious. So like right now I'm managing our entire self-service revenue, which is like 80% of our revenue. So, you know, that makes me anxious when I'm doing reporting and, you know, it's not what I want it to be or those types of things. Um, but, you know, really what helps cut that anxiety for me now is knowing that I have a team who's 100% behind me um, and that we're aligned. And in the past, uh, what's helped cut that anxiety is like having a manager who I know is like also behind me. And even if like the readout isn't good, they're, they're going to have my back. And so you said one of the areas where it really spikes up is when you have to present a case with incomplete information, which I, I feel like if you work in growth, that's a 
that's like a huge part of the job, right? Is how do you make the best decision with incomplete information? I think, it make, I think it makes everybody feel a little on edge. So I'm wondering when that happens and you're in the moment there and you've got a presentation coming up and it's in two days and you're feeling on edge, like what do you do then? Like, yes, it's great to have a team that supports you. Great to have a manager you can bounce ideas off of that you know got your back. But like when the, when the heart rate ticks up a little bit, what do you think about? How do you approach when that happens? I think the first thing is to prep everyone, like the people who you're going to be presenting to, the people, your manager, et cetera, like, so they know that you're anxious about it and that you're not feeling great about it. Um, no one wants a surprise in the boardroom. Um, like, I think that's like one of the biggest secrets that I learned while at OpenView is like a pre-read is good for everyone. Like, this is not a Broadway show. Like, people want the trailer. Um, so, you know, that's really important. For me as a person, um, if I'm feeling anxious, I, it's better for me to work out. Like, do I always keep to that? No. Um, but, you know, having that outlet is really, really valuable. And I recommend that people fi- figure out what their outlet is. I think for most people, uh, you know, a workout is always a good thing. And have you had any, have you had any moments either presenting or otherwise that have been like traumatic? work-wise that maybe you've brought with you from one experience to the next, or maybe had a hard time moving beyond? Um, yeah, I've definitely had a lot of traumatic moments in my career. <laughs> um, and I worked through some of them. I mean, actually, you know, full stop, I was fired from Cataland. Um, like the whole marketing team was changing over. I wasn't doing it. Like I was very distracted. I was not presenting information the way that I should have been. And I totally like deserved to be fired. Um, but, you know, I took that into dispatch and it like drove me for a year. Like I never felt good on Sundays because there was always that fear I was going to get fired again. I mean, for me, I turned it into fuel and I was like always like on top of what my CEO needed and always just like very proactive, never reactive. Um, and I guess it shaped me as a better person, um, but I carried it with me. And now it doesn't wake me up at night anymore, but it used to. I talk to folks all the time who have some flavor of this. It's like something happened at my last job. Now I'm at this new job. Things are going pretty well. But uh uh-oh, that thing that happened at my last job seems like it's coming to this new job. To go a little bit deeper on it, was there anything specific either that you thought about or talked to yourself about or focused on to, to try to work past and through some of those situations? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it was my attention to detail. Uh, I still don't have the world's strongest attention to detail. So now I like literally bring that up with people. I make sure that I always double look things over. Um, Always use that spell check, always use that grammar check. But it is something that I have to consistently remind myself of. Um, Again, I'm like always moving at 90 beats per minute. So it's not my (laughs) best thing. And I know my own Achilles heel now and it'll get me. It still gets me. like I've taken so many LinkedIn posts down because there's a misspelling. It's just like, damn, read it again. You know you um, can edit it, right? I know. Well, yeah. Okay. But yeah, you know, like, and it still gets me and I know that about myself. And now it's kind of like an inside joke. Um, but the fact that that has not like hamstrung my entire career is a good thing. But um, it's something that I consistently am thinking about for and sure. hating. For, hating. And, and you're not the only one, right? I think there's a ton of people who have their own flavors of that, who are silent suffering. And it sounds like, I'm going to paraphrase what I heard you say, but it sounds like your biggest tools have been to over-communicate and drive extreme clarity. 
right? You over-communicated when you're feeling good, when you're not feeling good, when you're feeling unsure, when things are spiking up, when you've had something that have happened in the past. It's, it's like you were talking about it. You're asking proactively for that feedback, all that good stuff. And it sounds like you're also trying to get extremely clear about what success looks like, what's expected. And when, and when you do have to present, for example, something where you don't have all the information, you're just trying to provide clarity there as well so that everybody's on the same page and there's no surprises. Is that, is that fair? Like, is that a core part of your operating system? Definitely. Um, and I've encountered like a number of environments where that's unacceptable, where like being nervous about presenting something that's not 100% accurate is unacceptable. And like no one's there to be your partner in that or no one's accepting that you potentially will, you know, have a grammar error here and there. And I think like it's good to know that about yourself and know that about an environment. Like there were a ton of jobs that I interviewed for over the course of the last year or so where I was just like, I'm going to be a bad fit for the culture here. Um, like I am not an MBA. I am not as buttoned up as you need me to be. Um, so I, I can't do this. And so as part of that, now you take that with you and it's part of your vetting process. So you've learned some stuff in the past and you've taken that and made your future better because of it. Yeah. You've mentioned a bunch of skills that I think will help anybody who works in and around growth, right? Driving clarity, trusting your gut, over communicating, asking for feedback proactively. I'm, I'm wondering if there's other soft skills that you see as being really important that don't often get talked about for people who work in these types of roles and lead these types of teams. I feel like almost like KPI literacy and like financial literacy is extremely lacking in our field, um, which is interesting because we have a lot of creatives, but we also have a lot of like very analytical people. But, and maybe this is just like a symptom of like the economic boom we've been in for the last decade, but it's just like people struggle to understand how things matter in the waterfall of like the larger realm of like valuation of how the market perceives you, why that matters. Um, I love economics as like a hobby. Um, and I loved OpenView because I could like gossip about people's margins with investors and like really have a great perspective on why when a company looked great, it actually wasn't, or why a company that looked like it wasn't great actually was, because it had this like under working engine. And being able to have like people to kick around those sorts of ideas with is really amazing. And having that level of literacy, I'm not saying you have to be a CFO, I'm not saying you have to be a finance major, but just understand why these things matter in the grand scheme of things also helps you have that perspective and also helps you prioritize. And it's something that I don't see enough of. Um, especially in our uh, industry and in our field. So you see folks who are really good at zoomed in analysis, probably, right? Someone who's uh, maybe a growth marketer who can understand performance marketing metrics or landing page metrics, or maybe a, a growth PM who's really good at understanding activation metrics. But what you're talking about is really the holistic big picture. How's the company doing? How could it be doing better? How does it compare to other companies? That type of stuff. Is that, that's what you're saying? Yeah. And maybe that's a leadership skill, but there are certain leaders I see who don't necessarily have that. And I think it's something that if you can learn in your 20s and implement in your 30s and 40s, you're going to be like top quartile um, as a person. And what's the advice for someone who might be listening to this, who feels like that's them? Like they're a really good operator. They're really good at helping move numbers when they're really zoomed in, but maybe doesn't have that big picture. Like what would be your advice to them so that they could level up a little bit? Yeah, for me, it's like more casual. I think like you could probably there's like, like there's like a ton of like Wall Street boot camps and things like that that you can actually go to. Um, but for me, it's really casual. I listen to Bloomberg every morning when I'm getting dressed and ready. I scroll through financial Twitter all the time. 
Um, I like slip into people's DMs when I have questions. And, you know, I passively am on like a ton of newsletters and things like that that I read every Friday morning where people talk through why these things matter. I mean, there's so many wonderful content creators out there. You have to separate through the noise. Um, but like, I don't know, I'm thinking about Buco Capital because I know he's based in Boston. Um, Sean Fanning is a good friend of mine, like great tweeters on why these things matter and why top line matters um, and why the bottom line matters too. Uh, so I highly recommend those guys. Put some, uh, we'll put some links in the show notes below. Um, and I appreciate you sharing a whole bunch of your story here. So, right, you and I have talked about this off pod. Career paths aren't linear. It's like everybody has bumps and bruises along the way. And what I've learned is if you don't talk about it, you blame yourself. And the whole reason for creating this podcast is just to surface even folks who have made it, so to speak, it didn't feel easy. And so for anyone who's listening to this who might be feeling some flavor of adversity or self-doubt or imposter syndrome, wherever they're at right now, what would be your advice to them for how to work through that adversity and find ways to keep going? Um, I tell myself this all the time because I'm either like ego high or bottom of the swimming pool low, like I am a trash you know, bag just floating around on the bottom of the swimming pool. And I tell myself, no one will ever be meaner to you than you are to yourself, at least me, because like I am mean. Um, and no one can hurt you as much as you can hurt yourself. Um, and no one is thinking as critically about you as you are yourself. Because honestly, you know, like no one's really thinking about you. Like they're evaluating you on a few metrics and then they're done. Um, so like keep that perspective, keep that in mind and have fun with it. And um I think that that perspective has really changed everything for me. And I've only come across it like very recently. So zoom out. Remember that you're just one piece of the picture. Nobody's thinking about you all day. And to just keep going because life is too yeah. short and let's all have some fun. Yeah, exactly. And learn from your mistakes. And learn from your mistakes, for sure. Yeah. Thank you for that. coming on. Thank yeah. you for sharing a little bit of your story. I appreciate it. You know, you're pretty vulnerable with some of the stuff you've got going on. And I'm sure other folks who are listening will dig it. Sweet. Thank you for listening to the pod. I hope that you enjoyed the episode. If you did, I have an ask. The biggest gift that you could give me as a small business owner and as a content creator would be a review. You know the game. You can go on to Apple Podcasts. You can go on Spotify. Leave a review. That would help me service this content to other folks who are like you. Obviously, you should subscribe to the content if you really dug it. And if there's feedback that you have for me, folks you think I should chat with, stuff that you wish I would gloss over faster, whatever it is, I'm all ears. I work in growth. You're not going to hurt my feelings. I, I try to collect feedback and iterate quickly. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn at Andrew Kaplan or on Twitter at at A Kaplan. Otherwise, hope you enjoyed the episode and I'll see you next show.